Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of immersive travel stories from Scotland. I'm your host and storyteller, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland, its people, wildlife, landscapes and histories. In every episode, I either whisk you away on a beautiful adventure or introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. In between, I share my top tips for your own Scotland trip and how to follow in my footsteps. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. most extreme environment you can think of. The things that come to my mind are deserts where the temperatures can reach 40 or 50 C during the day and then drop below zeros at night time. Or rock pools where water-living creatures have to adapt to life in a heated puddle twice a day. Places where it barely ever rains or places that are shrouded in darkness for half of the year. But salt marshes? didn't cross my mind. In fact, I had never even heard of them before. When I started researching which places I wanted to feature in this season about Scottish waters, I knew I wanted to highlight landscapes that are important for our climate and biodiversity. Places that you can visit to be immersed in nature. The blanket bogs of the flow country, which you heard about in our last episode, were one such place. And then a friend suggested that I look into salt marshes, a coastal landscape that covers just a small percentage of the Scottish West Coast, but nevertheless is in many ways just as important as the ever-present bog. For this week's story, I chose to take you to a salt marsh on the east coast of Scotland, near the historic town of St Andrews. I met up with Helena Simmons, a local researcher for the Green Shores Project, who took me out onto the salt marsh for a few hours and shared her passion for this unassuming landscape with me. A landscape where plants have to survive extreme swings of dry and wet and are adapted to thrive in both fresh and salt water. But before we dive into the salty waters of the Eden estuary, let me remind you of our Patreon community. While you, dear listener, get to enjoy Wild for Scotland for free, it is unfortunately not free to produce the show. 
It actually costs quite a bit of money and a lot of time to research stories, head out to record in the field, write the script, record and assemble all the pieces together to create the immersive audio experience I know you love. So if you can afford it, consider joining our Patreon community. We have two levels of support. For £3 a month, you will get our eternal gratefulness and a personal thank you note from me. And for £6 a month, you also get access to monthly bonus episodes. This month, for example, I'm sharing a sneak peek of the second half of this season with you, recorded somewhere on the beautiful west coast of Scotland. Visit wildforscotland.com forward slash support to learn more, or find the link to join in the show notes. And if financial giving is not in the cards for you, don't forget to take a screenshot of your podcast app and share a moment or a quote you enjoyed in this episode. Now, let's get salty in a good way. This is Salt of the Earth. We're walking down a wide gravel track as Helena, who's pushing her bike next to me, ushers me to stop. We stand quiet for a moment, waiting for our signal to continue. We watch the golf ball fly through the air for a second and make sure no one else is setting up to tee off before we continue our walk to the coast. I'm in five near St Andrews. Much of the land along the coast here is made up of golf courses. I can see three different ones just from where I'm standing, and in the distance I can spot the facade of the Hamilton Grand, a building that overlooks the historic old course, arguably one of the most famous golf courses in the world. If it isn't a golf course stretching its greens towards the edge of the sea, it's farmland, cows grazing or fields of oats and barley. But this isn't a story about golf or farming. I'm here to learn from Helena about a type of landscape that sits right between the water and the green of the golf courses. It squeezes in on a narrow stretch of ground that is not quite land and yet not quite sea either. I'm heading into a Scottish salt marsh. Salt marshes form in estuaries where rivers flow into the sea and fresh water is constantly mixed with salt water. There are thin green lines that sit between the sea and the land. Plants here are specially adapted to survive and thrive both in fresh and salt water, because twice a day when the tide comes in, they're submerged in the sea. When the tide is out, the salt marsh provides food, shelter and habitat for a wide range of insects and other species. I meet Helena at the height of low tide, so we can head out into the salt marsh together. She works for Greenshores, a salt marsh restoration project based at the University of St Andrews. At three sites across Scotland, they work to restore and expand existing salt marshes. Up in the Dornoch Firth near Inverness, in the nearby Tay Estuary, and here in the Eden Estuary on the outskirts of St Andrews. We step over a fence and cross a trickle of water over a wooden board, before climbing up the grassy slope of the embankment. 
I tread carefully in Helena's footsteps as the tall grass is still wet from the morning dew. As we reach the top, the expanse of the estuary comes into view. Oh, wow. That's flat and really long and wide. The sun's coming out now, which is nice. In the distance, I can see the white dunes of West Sands Beach glistening in the sunshine. The Eden Estuary is made up of intertidal mud and sand flats that sustain millions of plants and animals. Wading birds especially thrive in this landscape as they forage for food crawling or burrowing in the mud. But we're not here for the birds out there. We're here for that thin strip of greenery between the embankment and the sandy ground. We climb down the slippery rocks that were placed along the shore to protect the embankment from waves and erosion. The sand is soft, but not so soft that you'd sink in. It's actually quite easy to walk across it, were it not for the thousands of sprigs of samphire poking out of the ground. It's basically impossible not to step on some. Helena takes me along the edge of the mudflat, which is moving further and further away from the embankment. In between, there is a raised meadow covered in different types of grasses. Some are green, others are red, thin blades and fleshy leaves, forming mats or sticking out in succulent tufts. Throughout, purple sea asters are stretching their petals towards the warming sun. That raised meadow is the salt marsh. In a few hours, all those grasses and flowers will be submerged by the sea, waiting for hours before they can breathe again. Helena draws my attention to the edges of the salt marsh. Here, canyons are forming, creating a drop of 30, 40 or even 50 centimetres from the top of the salt marsh to the bottom of the seabed. Hardened brown mud that looks like lava flow reaches towards the bottom of the sand flats and white cracks break it up into smaller and smaller pieces. This is where the trouble starts, because the salt marsh at the Eden Estuary is eroding away. At the edge, the cliff edge, so to say. Yeah. So what we're looking at just here is where the sea is starting to erode away at what was once a healthy... And at the back, it is still a healthy salt marsh, but at the front, it is starting to get eroded away. And the reason it's getting eroded away is... Well, there's lots of reasons that um, salt marsh is always affected by things. The weather, the amount of energy in the sea at the moment is increasing because it's, everything's heating up. And that means with climate change, we're getting more energy in storm surges. We're getting more energy when erosion events are happening because everything's hitting a bit harder. So you can see where over the years the um, salt marsh had built up all this sediment underneath it but now that's being kind of eroded away and once it starts eroding away it will slump forward and break up and fragment and that fragmentation speeds up the erosion of the rest because you've got more edges where the erosion mm. can occur so in order to protect that salt marsh one of the things that we are going to do is plant more um, salt marsh plants slightly further out to shore which will be able to absorb some of the energy from the sea so that they're not being hit quite so hard so that gives them a bit of a chance to recover. Salt marshes are fantastic for actually storing carbon. They store more carbon than a terrestrial forest does, the same area of a terrestrial forest 
because what happens is within the soil it is very much a low level of microbial activity which would normally cycle the carbon back out into the atmosphere so the carbon gets pumped into the ground through the roots of the the plants all plants do that and also when leaves die and things break down that or, or fall off the plants they'll they'll go on the ground as well but the the microbial action won't break that down and it'll stay in in the substrate and you'll end up building up this salt marsh so it will actually increase in height over time mm-hmm. and you can see how much there is already kind of the difference between where supposedly the ground is of, of <laughs> well the it, it would have started on yeah it would have started on sand the and then built yeah. on top of that so yeah you can see where the sand is the sand is yeah. much lower so in a way it reminds me a little bit of bogs and and what peat does in a freshwater yes. bog yes um, exactly that it's by the sea <laughs> and again that's to do with a slow microbial mm-hmm. turnover yeah. yep so there's only about three percent of the scottish coastline which is actually covered with salt marsh oh wow partly because we've got very rocky shores yeah so there's not suitable space for mm-hmm. salt marsh to form but also because we we historically didn't really think of salt marsh as a valuable um place and it was often used as a tip mm-hmm. um so you end up with with these sites which are you know, just basically rubbish from centuries was put on top of it, and then it's no longer no no longer suitable for a salt marsh. But then you have to protect it because you don't want that rubbish. As Helena explained, salt marshes can do an awful lot for the land behind them. They form a natural barrier between the land and the sea, and can soften the blow of heavy storms and big waves on edges of the shore. As waves roll over the salt marsh, the soil and the plants absorb some of their energy, making them hit less hard. A healthy salt marsh doesn't have the same cliff canyons I see here at the estuary. It would form a smooth transition zone, steadily rising from the sand flats to the meadows behind it. Land that is hemmed by a salt marsh doesn't offer the sea the same amount of surface area to attack. The water can't just easily seep in and erode away the soil. In fact, you wouldn't even see where the edge was, as the vegetation changes gradually from land to salt marsh to sand flats. They can also store carbon in the soil, and when they're healthy, they grow at roughly the same pace as the sea level rises. Salt marshes literally hold the land together and protect it from erosion and floods. They are the salt of the earth. But the reality is that these landscapes are squeezed from both sides on an ever slimmer stretch of ground, while the sea level and temperatures are rising, slowly gnawing away at the edge, the salt marsh also can't expand onto the land behind it. That's already in use and valuable to its owners, whether it's a golf course, a farm or something else. And in addition, more and more wastewater runs off from the land, polluting the freshwater that the salt marshes rely on. We continue our walk and make our way further into the salt marsh. The ground is uneven 
and I have to step over piles of slippery seaweed carried in by the last tide. Helena said that salt marshes weren't considered valuable land, and I have to admit that at first glance, the landscape does look a little desolate. There's no high vegetation, what wildlife there is is small and unassuming, and there's dead seaweed scattered everywhere. But upon closer inspection, I see a vibrant and thriving ecosystem. Every few steps we stop, and Helena points out a different plant that thrives here in the salt marsh. The purple flowers of the sea aster are by far the most prominent of them all. They reach higher than others around them, and their yellow pollen attracts countless bees and flies who are buzzing in and out of sight. Lower to the ground, we find mats of red fescue, a common grass that grows in a creeping way and has roots that stabilise the soil. While grass-leaved auroch looks like it's got tufts of grass blades as leaves. Sea blight, on the other hand, has fleshy leaves that remind me of rosemary and succulents. They're used to store fresh water so that the plant can survive the drain of the salty tide. We spot bird feathers caught in the low vegetation as we listen to the calls of oyster catchers out in the estuary. Everywhere on the ground are seashells, washed up by the tide, now crunching beneath our feet. Out of the corner of my eye, I catch a glimpse of a red admiral butterfly sitting on a sea aster. Slowly, I try to move closer, without casting a shadow over it or making any sudden sounds. But before I can press the button on my phone camera, the creature lifts off into the air and dances elegantly towards the sky. All I manage is a shaky image with a squint horizon and a black and red smudge in one corner. The closer you look, the more you see. We're now crossing back over the samphire-filled sand flats, climb onto the embankment and return to the wooden board crossing and the fence. Back on dry land, Helena leads me into the heart and soul of the Greenshores restoration project. So what we've got here is... This um, is where the magic happens. Two volunteers are already busy at their workstations inside the spacious polytunnel. They're splitting plants that were collected from the salt marsh and encouraged to grow and multiply. Once they're fully established, they'll be replanted out in the estuary to strengthen the salt marsh and help it expand. Helena shows me boxes up on boxes filled with clumps of red fescue and sea club brush. The right side being watered by the rain. As the plants grow, though, salt water is introduced to harden them off to the harsh conditions in the salt marsh. It's a slow process, and it can take two or three years before a plant taken from the salt marsh is ready to be transplanted out again. These plants are what forms the bedrock of the salt marsh. Without them, this entire ecosystem is threatened to collapse. But by using this method of vegetative reproduction and giving the plants plenty of time to grow strong, the Greenshores project increases its chances of succeeding. I ask one of the volunteers, Jess, what draws her to this work. So I'm originally from the east coast of Virginia and we have a lot of salt marshes out that way. Um, And I went to a summer camp for a couple of years and actually ended up 
getting an internship there in high school. And it's a coastal camp and we spent a lot of time in salt marshes, even in like tidal creeks as well. I'm doing a lot of like water quality testing, um, learning about different birds. So I have a long love wow. for salt marshes. <laughs> That's really cool. And yeah. so what would you say is, is there like a noticeable difference between the salt marshes maybe back home and, and here? Um, so well, the, the, the camp that I went to, it's this area called Chincoteague and Assateague. There are these two barrier islands and it's got this wonderful bay that protects it from the sea. And they've been protected for a really long time. And so they are just these really vibrant ecosystems. And then coming out to the Eden, it's a much smaller um, marsh. You can see a lot more of that erosion that's happening. Um, and I think that's really what draws me to the project is I want to see it revitalized. And that is exactly what Helena, her colleagues at the Green Shores Project, and all their volunteers do here at the Eden Estuary. They're currently funded by the ScotGov Nature Restoration Fund, which is managed by Nature Scott. And so I ask Helena about the benefits of not just protecting, but restoring the salt marshes of Scotland. Kind of in existence in Scotland. Well, I mean, I suppose you could make that argument for any um, environmental thing. There's like... I always think that you shouldn't have to have a reason to keep some habitat because whether it benefits humans or not should not really be relevant because we are only one species on this planet and we share it. We should share it with everyone and everything. But if you need to have an economic argument, then you could maybe suggest that you're actually helping prevent erosion on the land. So if you value the land that is behind the salt marsh, then having that salt marsh will protect it from coastal erosion. And by protecting it from coastal erosion, you're maybe saving millions when it comes to protecting high value property like golf courses or arable farmland, which is very, you know, producing a lot of of crops. Mm. And so if you could, or I'm sure you have dreamed big, um, (laughs) if, if you can describe... What is it that you're aiming for? What is it that you're hoping for to achieve with a project like Green Shores? Um, so ideally what we're doing is we are making an, another habitat, another healthy habitat right on the coast, in between the sea and the, the shore. And it's one where it will have its benefits to the coast. It will prevent the, the coastal erosion, but it will also be providing a really nice biodiverse space for the birds and the insects and the plants especially because without the plants you don't get any of the other stuff um, just to thrive and especially in the face of all the different threats that they are they're being forced into them increasing sea level rise increasing storm force increasing runoff from the land Mm. and it all it all has its impact Fantastic. Um, how can people get involved if, if they want to come and volunteer as well or find out and learn more about salt marshes? Okay, well, when it comes to probably between December and March, we will be looking for lots of volunteers for actually planting out on the salt marshes. Um, so if you want to get involved in an actual habitat restoration project and make a difference in your environment, keeping an eye on, on our website and... Um, Facebook pages and well, Facebook page and Instagram. We're everywhere. Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> and Mastodon, um, all listed on our website. We will have the events 
listed. And we'll also be getting in touch with community groups and schools, local, local people that might want to be involved as well. Fantastic. So, and if you want to come and help on the Polytunnel, we're currently running Wednesday sessions. Um, but get in touch with me on Greenshores at standrews.ac.uk. Fantastic. We'll put all those links and the A few hours later, Helena is walking me back across the golf course. I came to St Andrews knowing nothing about salt marshes and what magical things they can do for our coastlines and our climate resilience. It's a lesson to take a closer look at landscapes, even if they look unassuming. You may just find the salt of the earth. I hope you enjoyed this trip to the Eden Estuary Salt Marsh in St Andrews. You can find links to learn more about this and other salt marshes that are being restored by the Green Shores Project in the full show notes on our website, along with Helena's contact information if you'd like to join a volunteering session and lots of useful resources to learn more. Now it's time for the practical part of the show. Here are five travel tips to help you get the most out of visiting a salt marsh and a trip to St Andrews. Tip number one, consider whether you have to visit. This sounds a little counterintuitive for a podcast like this, but really my first tip for visiting a salt marsh is to consider whether you have to go there at all. Salt marshes are fragile ecosystems and small fragments like the one at the Eden Estuary aren't really set up for tons of visitors. You may find it enough to just learn about this landscape from afar. Tip number two, go via West Sands. If you do want to see the salt marsh in Eden, you can access it from West Sands in St Andrews, where there's plenty of parking. It's a bit of a walk along the shore, and you do have to be very careful with the tides. Other things to be mindful of are the steep embankments, slippery rocks, and uneven ground below the vegetation. Tip number three, bring binoculars. Not only will they allow you to observe the salt marsh from a distance, which is safer for you and for the landscape, you can also use them to spot birds further out in the estuary. Tip number four, stick around and visit St Andrews. St Andrews is a wonderful place to visit, whether you spend time in the salt marsh or not. You can visit the ruins of St Andrews Cathedral, find the marvellous tunnels below the castle, stroll through medieval cobbled lanes and visit the beaches along the coast. Head to my Scotland travel blog, watchmesee.com, to find my detailed St Andrews travel guide. Tip number five, visit other salt marshes. Even though they are rare, there are other salt marshes in Scotland that are a little easier to visit. The Nature Reserve at Aberlady Bay in East Lothian, for example, has raised boardwalks around the salt marsh to prevent damage and make it easier to experience this ecosystem. And with this, I send you off to dream about your own trip to the Eden Estuary or any similar salt marsh in your local area. It really is a fascinating landscape to learn about, especially if you want to learn about climate resilience. Next week, we have a slightly different story for you. It is, of course, still about water, 
but I'm also getting more personal than ever before. I hope you'll tune in again. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. If you enjoyed this story, remember to take a screenshot of your podcast app right now and share it on your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us so we can say thank you. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Kamleitner. Thanks to Fran Turowskis, who's the co-producer and editor, and does the sound design. Michelle Payne and Anessa Matanda Mambingo are supporting us with social media and transcripts. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different watery place in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.